This is Famous and Gravy, a podcast about quality of life as we see it, one dead celebrity at a time. Also, you can play our game, Dead or Alive, at deadoraliveapp.com. This person died 2016, age 66. He studied electrical engineering at the University of Arizona. Uh, he must not have been good at it. <laughs> I have no idea. That's actually, that one's really meant to throw you off. He began his comedy career as a writer and went on to become one of the most successful stand-up comics of the 1980s. Ooh, George Carlin? Not George Carlin. His comedy was dry, self-deprecating, and sometimes a bit absurd. A frequent subject was his sexual prowess, or lack thereof. Hmm. And he was funny. He was funny. Uh, I don't know. Okay, okay. He had frequently substituted for Johnny Carson as the Tonight Show host. Jay Leno. Not Jay Leno. I believe Jay Leno is still with us, although we should verify. He's still alive. His show was often cited as a groundbreaking precursor to shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm and 30 Rock. Larry, Larry Sanders? Not quite. His stage name was Larry Sanders. That's why you're like, you're like right there. Oh. He was best known for the Larry Sanders show, a dark look at life behind the scenes of late night talk show. I have no idea who that actually <laughs> is then. <laughs> Today's dead celebrity is Gary Shandling. Gary Shandling, I do know who that is. His voice. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Oh, that's great. I love that you guessed Larry Sanders. It's so perfect. Oh, man. See, you're too hot. You're too hot. You're great. Well, let's start with this. Now, how many people have seen me before? Just applaud people who have seen me before. All right. There goes that material. Great. Uh, no, now I write every day. Those of you who know me, I write new material every day and I keep it fresh, so we're all right. So what do you think about this Watergate thing? Welcome to Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. My name is Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we choose a celebrity who died in the last 10 years and review their quality of life. We go through a series of categories to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer a big question. Would I want that life? Today, Gary Shandling died 2016, age 66. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Gary Shandling, a comedian who deftly walked a tightrope between comic fiction and show business reality on two critically praised cable shows, died on Thursday in Los Angeles. He was 66. So they just highlighted the TV career. They had a little bit of Kenny Rogers. That's it? Yeah. Like, I was looking for more here. Correct. It's not that I don't like what's said here. Deathly walked a tightrope between comic fiction and show business reality. And he did that twice on two shows. Yes. And that is like what he's known for. I mean, this isn't totally wrong, but boy, it felt like it totally missed. It just feels like such an excerpt from his life. Not even, I think, from our point of view. I just think from what the public might know him as. I wonder about that. It's kind of fascinating how important and impactful he was and how many people, I think, really struggle to like recall his name today. 
You know, you really had to be a fan of one of these two shows to remember him, even though he guest hosted for Johnny Carson, even though there's an army of modern comics who point to him as one of the greats. He hosted the Grammys four times. Right. I don't know. How how bad is it? Because you know, the obituary is there to say, here's what we are going to remember him for. And these are probably the top two items. He's likely to be remembered for- By the grand population. By the grand population, outside of, you know, the entertainment industry. So is it just? You mean, is it a just obit? Yes. In other words, are you saying this obituary does not do him justice? Or is it doing him justice, right? Because it is telling the world, reminding the world what he was known for. I mean, I don't think it does. I think it absolutely doesn't do him justice. Think about the Maurice Sendak obituary, right? Where people really struggle to remember his name. He's kind of known for one thing, where the wild things are, yet that obituary puts him at, you know, one of the greatest children's artists and illustrators of the 20th century. You could easily have said that about Gary Shandling. What's missing is how much he actually ushered in. That he created this entire new genre of not only cable television, but of types of sitcoms and comedy and types of stand-up. 100%. I mean, the rest of the obit points to, you know, Entourage and Curb Your Enthusiasm and 30 Rock as sort of like having a relationship to The Larry Sanders Show. But The Larry Sanders Show, I mean, other people will make the argument that this is the show that ushered in prestige television, that HBO, if you look at their programming before 1992, it was like first and 10 and dream on and not necessarily the news. Like they didn't know what they were doing. Yes. And then Larry Sanders comes along and is really groundbreaking, really deep, really story rich, you know, becomes this, you know, one of these institutions that is like churning out talent, both on the writing side and on the acting side. And then after that, you know, a few years later, you get The Sopranos and The Wire and everything else that has made television so great that HBO pioneered that. And it starts with Larry Sanders. All they say here is critically praised cable shows. That totally undersells its impact. Right. And you said, you know, it's, it's alluded to later in the obituary, but I think what we are saying is that the first line is missing a nod to the groundbreaking yeah. that he did. And it's also missing to me a character trait. He's very oftenly known as like the Buddhist comic, right. right? The one who meditated. There needs to either be some nod to the kindness or to that side of him. Yeah. I think you and I are both trending towards a low score here. I think so. I kind of think I want to give it a five. I was going five also. Were you really? Yeah. I also think it's sort of hard. Some of the things we pointed to a second ago, the Buddhist comic, the great impact. I mean, I think there's a way of doing it, but I think it is harder. You know what? I'm going four, man. I'm going four. You're taking it down? Yeah, I'm taking it down. The more I talk this out, like this was knowable, you know? And it's it wasn't that hard to see the outpouring, to sort of read the tea leaves you had to kind of sort of know what a big goddamn deal this show was. Yeah, I'm going for it. You're a dream juror, Michael. Hmm. You're often persuaded you can start one way, (laughs) then you hear the lawyer's (laughs) argument or your own argument, and then you'll change. You're like, not guilty. I do like the movie 12 Angry Men quite a bit. It is a wonderful movie. Yeah. Uh, Well, thanks. Okay. I'll take that as a compliment. Five and a four. Five and a four. You'll take it as a compliment that you're a good juror? Yeah, I think so. I like to think I'm weighing out lines of evidence and I'm talking the thing out. I mean, Jesus, what the fuck is this show about, if not that? Category two? Mm -hmm. Category two. Five things I love about you. Here, Amit and I work together to come up with five reasons why we should be talking about this person, why we might love them. 
I wanted to give you the opportunity to start this time. I'll start with number one, the Sunday basketball game. Ah. So Gary Shandling built this house in the early 90s. It included a half-court basketball court. That sounds very strange, but that's yeah. how you describe it. And he hosted a Sunday basketball game basically all throughout the 90s and even 2000s, I think. I think even in the 20-teens. I think it went on up until his death, more yeah. or less. Yeah. So during the filming of the Larry Sanders show, primarily a lot of the cast and crew would come play, but a lot of the people just in the L.A. comedy and entertainment community would just come by Shanling's house and play Sunday pickup basketball. It was an invite-only thing. Yes, definitely. It was the thing that you wanted to be invited to as being part of a club, sort of, but his idea of it was recreating childhood playing on the streets. Yeah. So what I love about it is his attempt to create community. Yes. And to create acts of togetherness. I think that's very well said. Mark Marin asked him about it on his show, and Marin was always like insecure because he kind of wanted to be invited, but he didn't know how to play basketball. And Gary Shandling's like, well, I'm glad you didn't because with that attitude, it wouldn't have been a fit and you would have made it awkward. Because like, it was it was, it was pretty it, good basketball. Yes. I mean, Duchovny was a regular and he played at Princeton. I mean, I think Sasha Barracoa and Jim Carrey, like Kevin Nealon, like, I mean, the, the list of who played there is- Yeah, Jed Apatow talked about playing there. Sarah yeah. Silverman played there. Sarah Apparently S- she's not a bad baller. Yeah, that's what I heard. I mean, I think it was a thing of curiosity to people, like who's on- Gary Shandling's basketball court. But I also think you're very right in that it had that singular purpose of let's just play basketball. This isn't about climbing the ladder or trying to get ahead in Hollywood or anything like that. And if you make it about that, you probably won't be invited again. Yeah, it's just play. Yeah. And to me, it was ritual, it was community, and that's what I love about it. All right. That is a soft intro into Gary Shandling. I'm going to go bigger. I got to get the thing off my chest. That's Really stands above anything else I might put. So I'm going to take number two. Yes. Lifelong commitment to meditation and spirituality. Okay. He was into Zen and meditation and wellness and and vegetarianism even way before it was in vogue. Like he found meditation at a very early phase of his life and his commitment to it looks to be Serious, if not like a, a full body and full life dedication to it. He had, you know, Buddhist monks speaking at his funeral. The Judd Apatow documentary was called The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. But it looks very sincere and very committed and very real. And I think maybe the single most important thing about him. Really? He once said all of his comedy springs from his meditation practice. I think that's really cool. There's a story in 2003, he traveled to D.C. to introduce this Buddhist monk to congressional members. There's a good joke I like here. He said, referring to Thay, who's one of the monks he was traveling with, he joked, he's a special man who has helped millions with their suffering through teaching them mindfulness. But he doesn't know real suffering because he hasn't dated as much as I have, which I think is great. Okay. Okay. What am I trying to say with all of this? I think that the discipline to do it and the anchor to return back to it and to have it as something you're doing really for your whole life that doesn't seem to wax and wane that much, I love that about him more than anything else. Am I capturing the like gravity of that enough? You are. What I'm not hearing is why 
you love that about Gary Shandling. Like, I could tell you that I meditate yeah. uh, daily. And it's something I admire about you and have for a long time. Well, thank you, Michael. Yeah. But why do you love it about Gary Shandling? Because I think he's caught up in an insane world in Hollywood, that the entertainment industry is a beast, and it chews people up, and it often produces unsavory characters, and there's all kinds of ego on display. The whole thing is about performing and performance, and who are you, and are you bringing your most, quote-unquote, likable self to the television cameras or the movie cameras day in, day out. I think that messes with your head. And I think that well before anybody else saw how important it was to remain grounded and to check in on your ego and to try and let go of, you know, material attachments and all the other stuff that comes with Buddhist thought, I think he locked in on that and like doubled down on it as time went on. That's an answer, my friend. Okay. That's a good answer. Okay. Yeah, and I think this is going to come up in later categories. I see it as so need-based. I see it as a man that just suffers and that it was required more than it was discipline. No question. And this will come up. Sarah Silverman, I think, said as much. He committed to Zen not because he wants to be Zen, but because he had to have it or something like that. I'm screwing up the quote, but yes, I agree with that. It's the best. I like your work there at the end. You really captured it well. All right, what do you got number three? So I've still got a lot, but you're on a roll. I want you to go number three. He's a great reactor. I a think reactor. Like his reactions. Like I think his whole comedy is actually reactive. So the way his face transforms with a smile is great. He goes from, you know, sort of looking concerned, neurotic, confused to like smiling and neurotic and confused. And there's just this whole face transformation when he smiles. I saw somebody describe his whole comedy as reacting to people with a eh look on his face, which I think actually captures a lot. And I think it actually plays into his stand-up that I tend to think of stand-up comedy as you prepare some jokes, you go out onto stage, you offer those jokes up and you hope they get a reaction and then you move on to the next joke. But I think that actually what makes a lot of great comics great is how they react to the laughter. It's not just are these jokes coming through, but how do I make them even funnier based on the audience response to the humor? So who do we have here? How many people now? Let's get to know each other. How many people from out of town applaud? All right, a lot of, a lot of people visiting. Who's winning money? Winning Losing. Yeah, I'm the worst. I start throwing my money out the car window about an hour before I get here, just to get warmed up. Take quarters, throw them out the window, pull the gear shift on the car. It's the same damn thing. (laughs) Have you gone up to the all-you-can-eat buffet yet to try to win it back? Have you seen those people up there going, I'll eat $700 worth of food if it kills me. Put some chicken in your purse, honey, when we go... But I just feel like his ability to react to the moment with humor was his genius. Yes. And it was also with body language. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Like he would, totally. you could see when he lightened up, when he was proud of a joke that he told, yeah. or he was proud of how like shameful and corny it was. I know you didn't get a chance to do a deep, deep dive on Larry Sanders. No, did, I did watch a few episodes. Did you see the one where David Duchovny has a crush on him? That one was highlighted in the documentary, so I did see that part of it. (laughs) There's a scene where, like, Duchovny reaches out his hands and starts, like, stroking Shanley's cheek. His face in that, like, oh, my God, what's happening? That encompasses what I'm talking about. Like, that reaction was so 
freaking priceless. Oh, yeah. so good. And I can I can wedge something in here because this was on my five things, but I think it fits perfectly well with what you just said. Is the man learned to act? And a lot of stand-up comedians that are given sitcoms, they do a terrible job of acting. Mm. Seinfeld was notorious for this. They're not great actors. Yeah. But a guy like Gary Shandling had the natural ability to react, but he also learned to act. Yeah. So that he was combining both the discipline of acting with his natural ability, and it just ended up in perfection like that Duchovny scene. Yeah. Well, let's leave it at that for number three. Great reactor. Okay. So number four, I'm gonna I'm I'm stealing one from the Michael Osborne playbook. Oh wow! You said this, I think, about Maury Sindak, and I'm gonna say this about Gary Shandling is relation to myself. Oh my God! I'm so glad you brought this up. I, um, I made a list. So did you? <laughs> I mean, we'll get there with some it's, of this. But it's yeah. a lot. But yeah. God, the more I read and the more I saw, I was like, "That's me. That's can me." We, can we That's talk me. about this for a minute? Tell me about like where you found points of comparison. Okay, biography point number one, his dad owned a fucking print shop. I had that. Yeah. My God. <laughs> yeah. So that is what my parents did their entire career. Secondly, uh, we talked about the commitment to meditation, yes. which I have, and mine is need-based, which is why I suspect that of Shandling. But I also, in the flirtation I did with stand-up comedy, I had a lot of meditation jokes, which really, like, no one really got, but I had a lot of fun telling them. Yeah. And Shandling did the exact same thing. The third thing is this obsessive commitment to originality. Really, anything that he did performance-wise or life-wise had to be original. It had to have been not done before. And it's damaging, but he had it, and I don't think he knew how to shed it, and I don't think I know how to shed it. That's interesting. Uh, it's a tough thing to shed. Conan said this about Gary Shandling, that Gary Shandling was poised to basically take over Letterman in 93 when Conan first appeared on Late Night. And they actually offered it to Shandling yes. before Conan took it. That's right. And when Conan was interviewed, he said, you know, it was never right for Gary because he's far too committed to the originality of the art. Yeah. If he has to go up there and host a talk show and do a set every night, he is going to hate it because that is not original. You know, as you were talking about that, I feel like that quality is very easily misunderstood as perfectionism because it sounds like perfectionism in, in it's a place. neuroses, no. Well, commitment to originality, I think, is actually the best way you put it. Stubborn commitment to originality. And like, if it's not original, it's sort of not worth it. That's different from perfectionism. It's just wanting to create what hasn't been created before. And whether that's an act or an art, or if it's just a life, to make sure that your life has not been the same as anybody else's. But tell me why that's also neuroses or neurotic. There is an absence of letting go. And there's nothing more freeing than just letting go and accepting every now and then. Yeah. What did I miss in the parallels between Gary and Amit? I hope this comes out the right way. Unconventionally attractive. Really? I think so. I think okay. you're an attractive man. And I think Gary Shandling was an unconventionally attractive Have man. Have you validated this with women? Did you like take a I'm not going to tell survey? you. I'm, not, I'm going to get them to pass you notes in class. Okay. All right. I did want to say one thing about meditation humor. Did you see the, the exchange he had with Ram Dass? I did. There was a joke he says, I've been meditating for 35 years so I can meditate until my mind is pretty empty, pretty blank, but then there's no one to blame. Yes. And he says the first time anybody laughed at that was when Ram Dass- And Ram Dass cracked up. Yeah, totally cracked up. And he said, now I have an audience for my meditation material. And Ram Dass replied, humor is great in spiritual work. It gets you there. Put a pin in that idea. I'm going to come back to that one. Okay. So that's number four. Uh, so I got number five. 
The parallel journey with Seinfeld is actually quite fascinating to me. I will say this. Go ahead. No, you will say this. I will say this. He's always putting these things in front of their statements. I'll say this. I'll tell you one thing. Okay, let me be honest. Question? May I say something? (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you what I think. Here's a thought that crossed my mind. (laughs) Let me bounce something off you. <laughs> oh, there's Isn't a good it? little chunk. Yeah, that's a good that's little chunk. That's a good chunk. I don't want That's it. where the doubles act when we go out. <laughs> They're both neurotic single Jewish men with an eye towards situations where the social norms are not apparent. You know, I've heard Seinfeld describe his show as like we were always attracted to situations where it was just not clear what you're supposed to be doing there and how you're supposed to be reacting. One of the last things Gary Shandling did that was public facing before he died was comedians in cars getting coffee. Yes. And it had that unfortunate title. <laughs> the name of the episode was, it's great that Gary Shandling is still alive. Then he died like two months later. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I also feel like the way those two guys were friends, I love, but also how important they were for 90s comedy. And I really just feel like there's a great compare and contrast story to be told with them in terms of where the similarities and where the differences and how do they impact the industry and what did they mean to other comics? And also, what did they do that led them up to the shows that were perfect for them? And then what did they do after that? I guess all of this kind of gets back to groundbreaking humorists. But I feel like if you couple him with Seinfeld in a way, it begins to reveal a lot of things about the world that are really funny. Because Seinfeld is so relatable to everybody. Yeah. Seinfeld is so huge. Yeah. What it really says, too, is that Shandling was just barely not Seinfeld. Right. You know, like, without these, like, hang-ups and neuroses, perhaps he would be the most famous, richest comedian of all time. Yeah. There's actually one other thing I want to point to with a comparison that gets back to the first line of the obituary, the tightrope between comic fiction and show business reality. Jerry Seinfeld- That is the description of the Seinfeld show. Right. They're both really playing with this idea that's sort of surrealist of playing a version of themselves on television. I mean, there was even somebody in the quiz who guessed Larry Sanders as if that was a real person. It was so close to Gary Shandling that Larry Sanders feels like a real person. Yes. But even more than that, I think the the Seinfeld comparison is interesting because people are going to remember his name long after he's dead, I think. And already people are like, wait, who's Gary Shandling again? If you had said who's going to be the bigger, more famous person for time in memoriam back in 1985 or 86, I think they would have said Gary Shandling, hands down. Yes. His star just seemed to be going, rocketing up so much faster. Yeah. You know? I think he was just a few neuroses away from being Seinfeld. I agree. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. I I think a good way to wrap up this point, which I almost had as my Malkovich moment, was the opening of that Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee, Mm. where, uh, you know, as Shandling opens the door and walks out, the very first thing he says is to Jerry is, I love you. And Jerry just says, I love you. And they embrace. Yeah. I I sense so much authenticity in that moment. I agree. I did too. Let's recap the five things. So number one, we had... Basketball as ritual and community. Basketball as ritual and community. I had lifelong commitment to Buddhism. Number three, I had great reactor uh, and reactions. Number four, we had Gary and Amit. Gary and Amit. And uh, number five, we had Gary and Jerry. Okay. 
Category three, Malkovich Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people take a little portal into John Malkovich's mind where they can have a front row seat to his experiences. Would you mind going first? Yeah, I don't mind going first. Okay. So in the late 70s, he was a rising stand-up comic. And back then, the way you know that you made it or what launched your career is once you make it on The Tonight Show. So he finally made it on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He did a set and he knocked it out of the park. Yeah. He killed it. He He did a perfect set. He knew he did a perfect set. (laughs) <laughs> I was camping up in Sequoia National Park, and uh, I'm Jewish, you know, and my friend said, hey, Jewish people don't camp. <laughs> and uh, we do. We just have it catered. That's all. And uh, so I'm out in the country, you know, I'm driving my car, and there's a cow on the side of the road. Now, we've all done this because we're mature adults. When you see a cow on the side of the road, you stick your head out the car window and go, moo. Like, we expect that cow to be thinking, hey, there's a cow driving that car. How can he afford that? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I wrote some of these jokes. The, uh... <laughs> the story that was told is that he went backstage and he brought Bob Saget along with him because they were such close friends. The story that I heard is that there wasn't really words exchanged. You know, like Shanling goes back and smiles and Saget is expressing compliments. And Shanling just collapses into Bob Saget's arms and starts crying because he achieved exactly what he wanted to achieve. Is that what's going on with that? Well, there was two things. There was that and it was also what happens now. Yeah. Like I've reached my own nirvana. And there's the elation of that, of climbing the highest mountain, and the fear that also goes with climbing the highest mountain. And I don't think many people have those experiences. That's interesting. It's sort of like winning the Super Bowl or something. Yeah, it's like this moment is so perfect, but what if this is the most perfect moment I ever have? Have you had moments like that? Not necessarily of crying in your best friend's arms, but of achieving something that felt like perfection and then being left with the thought of what could possibly like top this? Yeah, I don't know if I've had exact moments, but I've I've had prolonged experiences that have been so good and I felt so lucky. And then I'm like, well, shit, what's the rest of life going to be like? Do you have an answer for that? I have a little bit of an answer that I'm not completely comfortable with, and that answer is in not knowing. Nothing is written, and nothing is prescribed, and you have no idea what the greatest feeling you'll ever feel is. And the whole idea of it being the greatest feeling you've ever felt is that you can't imagine it. I had a different answer for what you do with that. Okay. Give it away. Tell somebody else about it and help somebody else get there. And just build up so everybody has, not everybody, but as many people as possible can reach a higher plane. I think that's what it means to be of service. I only bring that up because I hope this comes up again with Gary Shandling, is that I see his life in in many ways as increasingly devoted to acts of service. Yeah. I mean, if you just look simply at the careers he launched. And actually, that might segue into my Malkovich moment. Let me ask this question. The Conan O'Brien story of when Conan got ousted... 
I think there is a really important data point for the idea that Gary Shandling learned what to do with that feeling, which is when Conan O'Brien got ousted from network television and lost his show. Conan O'Brien is all distraught, goes to Hawaii with his family. While he's there... And suddenly the phone rang. And I heard a voice. And it's an unmistakable voice. And it said, Conan, it's Gary. I'm staying three doors down. We're on an island. There's no avoiding me. (laughs) And Conan tells this great story about how he spent the week with Gary Shandling talking about, like... Buddhism, talking about Eckhart Tolle, talking about, you know, what to do. Because, I mean, at that point, like, Gary Shandling knew, like, nobody else in the world can help Conan but me. Like, who else knows what it means to, like, lose a show you love and what it means to be a talk show host? I'm three doors down, and even though once upon a time I was offered this job, I'm here to help you, Conan. And then Conan tells this hilarious story, how they go on a hike and watch this sunset. And we're both watching the sun go down, I turned to Gary and I said, Gary... This is the most romantic moment of my life, and it's with you. (laughs) I think that speaks to me of what you do with that feeling, of what it means to feel like what could possibly be next. Yeah. That is mentorship. That is wisdom. And it's a who can I uniquely help. And I see that in Gary Shandling a lot. Let me ask you something about this give it away concept, which I agree with. I mean, I I wholly agree in— A commitment to service. A commitment to service. Wonderfully put. So the idea is feeling, right? That you've had this elation coming, in Shanling's case, after he performed and killed it at The Tonight Show. So my question is the actual feeling. Is the giving feel as positive as the renewing? I think so. Because I think it is a vicarious reliving of the attaining of the feeling. Every time you give it, you reattain. You remember what it was like to have been there. But it is also, because it is an ego-less gesture, it's infused with depth and with richness and with a deeper meaning. Yeah. It means even more than to have attained it yourself. My Malkovich moment? Your Malkovich moment. He told a story on Letterman once where he's at home and he's watching Letterman, and he's kind of drifting off, and he didn't realize it was a rerun, and he's sort of like falling asleep, and he comes on on a previous guest spot on Letterman, and he hears this voice as he's nodding off and doesn't immediately recognize it as his own. <laughs> and then he's like, who is that whining, annoying voice? There? I went, oh, my God, is this what the audience thinks? And I was in that that half-conscious state, you know, where... You can kind of hear what's going on in the room. And this guy's whining about his girlfriend and his his hair. And I'm going, this is a nightmare. This is a nightmare. And I woke up thinking, oh, it was just a nightmare. And then I looked at the screen and it was real. It was me. Uh, Here's why I like it. I feel like this whole thread the line tightrope between comic performance and reality behind the scenes, like that's a personal experience of it. He had been on Letterman and Carson and, you know, talk shows before. So it's not the novelty of seeing oneself on TV. It's the not knowing that it's going to be you and suddenly being graced with this like unfiltered, almost objective take on yourself. Yeah, you know, sort of like the first time you hear your voice on a home answering machine. Yes. I suppose this will come up later. But you're like, wait, that's me? It's that, but it's like, this is not just me talking. This is me being me on television. 
I want to know what's going on in his head in that moment. I mean, he makes light of it on the Letterman show. But yeah, I just want to know what's going on there. What do you suspect? Neuroses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I think this will come up in a later category, but... Okay, good yeah. one. Good. Right. I mean, we basically threw three Malkoviches in there. We, we kind did. of cheated our way into three. Yeah. I can't tell if this is going to be a fast or a slow category, but let's move on. Category four, love and marriage. How many marriages? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? No marriages, no kids. There was a woman he dated... Linda Doucette, former yes. Playboy model. They started dating in 87. She was cast on the Larry Sanders show. They break up in 94. She's fired from the Larry Sanders show. She files a lawsuit claiming sexual discrimination. They settle out of court. I tried to get a little bit more information from her because she goes on to marry somebody else and have has a kid. She says they broke up because she wanted to have children and Larry didn't. She's certainly, like in the Judd Apatow documentary, you get the sense that she's describing Larry as a soulmate. And yes. you get a sort of feeling from her like we were ultimately meant to be together. So she looks like closer than anybody else that Gary Shandling came to marrying anybody. Yeah, I mean, it was a seven-year relationship, which does surpass many Hollywood marriages. And they did get engaged at some point. They did build a house together. That's right. She knew it was her destiny to be a mom, and he could never make up his mind on it. And I should say, and I think this is maybe important, at least on the question of children, what he told her was that his brother died at a very young age of cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic disease, and that he has a fear of having kids. It's a possibility he carries it on. Correct. Which makes sense. I mean, yes. it, it, that that is certainly described as like the original trauma of his life, his closeness with his older brother who died at a very young age, and he, he had no other siblings. And it certainly sounds like it created a really complicated relationship with his mother because she had a child die, and then she just, you know, felt maybe in an unhealthy way committed to her son, Gary. In his comedy a lot, I mean, this is even in the obituary, He's self-effacing about his dating life and his anxieties to some extent around children and, and being a dad and not wanting to do it. You know, and I'm trying to make this relationship work because, you know, I, I think that's the key to the whole whole thing. You know, I think you date for a while, you're in a relationship, eventually in your life you have to get married because you just have to. That's how I feel. That's probably what I'll say at the ceremony. I'll probably go, I have to. <laughs> no, no, it's I do, Gary. No, I have to. Trust me, it's an internal pressure. I'll... I'll explain it to you at the reception. I, a friend of mine said, you should get married, Gary. You'll get a lot of new comedy material out of it. Which, that's a huge risk. What if I don't? Do you think it's a problem that he never got married? No, I don't think that's a problem. I think there was a lot of evident loneliness in him. Yeah. Uh, marriage is not the only solution to that. There is no question that there's an expectation of what you're supposed to do in culture. Yes. You're supposed to get married. You're supposed to have kids. And I've said before on the kid question, I don't feel like we should have that expectation when it comes to children. I would double down on that here. What I, I can't totally figure out, and I don't think it's an either or thing with Gary Shandling, whether his decision not to get married to Linda or anybody else was fear-based or was, I don't know, self-affirmative. But I feel like whatever is true, like it needs to be possible for people to say, I'm not meant to be married. And I am still fulfilled. And I'm still fulfilled. Exactly. 
And I don't know what's true here. The man is obviously neurotic, and he's working out his demons on stage and in his TV shows and through his art. And so there's clearly fear and discomfort around the idea. It's one key area of uh, my material in my life. Any struggle of the human spirit and any struggle to find oneself. And I think that's what it's about. Is my life about getting married? Is it about continuing to work? Is it about getting approval from the audience? Is it about... And those are the areas that I explore. Mm -hmm. I've certainly heard you express at times, like, I'm 44 and not married. I suspect there are moments where you feel like that is a quote-unquote problem. But do you also ask the question, maybe this isn't a problem? I do, but I'm looking for examples to where it's not. And do Um, you see that here? That's the question. Do you see that with Gary Shandler? I don't, because I still see loneliness in him. Yeah, but there's loneliness in everybody. I don't know that, as you said a second ago, I'm not sure marriage answers loneliness. Like, if he had a, a loving wife at his side with, you know, smiling pictures and People magazine or whatever, you know, all the way up until 2016 when he died, it might look like it's not lonely. But I don't know how seriously to take, you know, that alternative universe and those that imagery. Okay, so take it a different way. What you said about doing with the joy and the elation is to give it away. Yeah. And he never found somebody to give it away to a singular person. He never found a soulmate. Or if he did in her, it, it chose not to pour his energies in that direction. Correct. But if good fortune and ecstasy are things that build up inside you and the way to deal with them is to give them away and share them, yeah, the most direct channel is with probably a single companion. But I guess that's the point I'm trying to make is maybe the most direct channel, but what does that mean? Why not have it be the people on the basketball court? You know, why not have it be the people backstage at the comedy store or wherever it may be? I just think that's where we are in modern times. It is, but I just wish, I don't know that that expectation sometimes, I mean, I think it's a kind of a question of whether or not you believe monogamy is like sort of the natural order or something, right? Like it's supposed to be that way. I believe in monogamy and I respect it and it's important. And and I'm not even talking about sexual promiscuity. I'm just talking about the assumption that there is supposed to be one other out there for whom is your fate and destiny. I think maybe we take that story a little too seriously. I think without a doubt we don't, but we're, we're living not in the right time for those people that aren't constructed that way. Because especially you take a guy like Gary Shandling living in L.A., to me, the alternative to a single companion in marriage is a great built-in, nearby, proximate community. Yeah. We just don't have that structure. Yes, perhaps if he moved That's into not 100% a small 100% true, though. We have churches. We have support groups. We have uh, book clubs. I mean, we have places where there are communities you— I'm talking about constant surrounding community. I'm talking about a circle of tiny homes sitting around a common— Fire. You're talking about family. I'm talking about family that's not blood, but yeah. family that acts like family in the consistency with which you see them, which you share with them, in which you actually do somewhat unconditionally love them. I agree that there's not a pre-established alternative to it, but I disagree that it cannot be built. That you can say my tribe is that of comedians and can have an equally meaningful level of intimacy, the fact that it's not poured into a single individual, I'm just trying to say I'm not convinced 
the absence of that is a major deficit in somebody's life. But you need a tribe to be of like-minded. Your tribe of comedians who are all married and all have kids, it's not reciprocated, yeah. right? Your love is not reciprocated in the same way. You know, I experience that a lot right now is that more or less with one or two maybe exceptions, everybody is coupled or married with kids. And this might be my support network. And this might be with the exception of my parents and my brother, my love network, but it's not equally reciprocated yeah. because theirs is going in other directions. I see. Reciprocation, you're talking about love, but love from an individual in a way that is at the part that you're giving it away. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, I think what you're describing is the experience of loneliness. It sort of feels weird if that's dispersed. Right? Yes. I mean, I think that's what you're talking about. Yes. What more is there to say about Gary Shandling's love life? Well, he had hopes for it. You know, you see the interviews in the 80s and I think even after Linda, you know, he did say there's a woman out there. You know, I think I would say here, this show is always heading towards the Vanderbeek. Do I want your life or not? Thus far, we've made a very strong case for. This is easily the category where there's the largest case against. Yes. Okay. And there's very few, if you just do a Google search for- Single uh, celebrities? Or celebrities who never married, Who right? never married, yeah. It's a pretty small list, and he is on that list. Should we move on? Yeah. Okay. Category five. Net worth. What'd you find? There was some trick math. Yeah, I, so I saw 20 million, but I don't think that's the whole story. What did you see? Well, I think he left behind about 700 grand actually in the bank. Liquid cash. Yes, but he established this trust, which may have had around 19 to 20 million in it. Yeah. There was a gift after death of around 16 million that he gave to various medical causes. Yeah. But the 700,000 was all that was left, quote unquote, to his name, which he gave to essentially his lawyer and longtime friend. I got to say, when I saw that number, my I had two rapid-fire reactions. The first was, wow, that's lower than I thought. And then as I sat with it, I loved it more and more. Yeah. I don't know where the extra money would have come from, right? I don't think the Larry Sanders show was a windfall. And, you know, he had a sort of in-and-out relationship with working the comedy clubs and so forth. But I liked that it wasn't a whole hell of a lot more. And maybe this is the story I want to tell about him being a, a sort of committed Buddhist and not, you know, clinging to material things and attachments and so forth. So I loved this number. Yeah, I got to say it's higher than I thought. Really? Yeah, in the last 16 years of his life, he didn't have a big moneymaker. Yeah. Had he wanted more money, that was available to him. He could have shilled himself out easily yes. after Larry Sanders' show, and he didn't. So it looks to me like a number he chose. Yes, I think that's why I liked it. Uh, category six, Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Halls of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons, as well as impersonations. Okay, let's start with SNL. He hosted in 1987. Yes, like, You I don't get to be a host unless you're pretty top shelf. Yep. With The Simpsons, there's almost no... Mention or guest appearances. There's one throwaway line in an episode in season 13. However, five of the original Simpsons writers started with Gary Shandling and went on to write for The Simpsons. Yes. It's kind of baffling in a way that he never voiced himself on The Simpsons. I assume he was just too busy? Uh, or it was almost just like sacred ground, I think, to those writers. Yeah. 
they didn't need to bestow that on him. Yeah, I mean, I will say, like, uh, I forget what his name is, Mike something, who was a Simpsons showrunner for a long time, one of the head writers. After Gary Shandling died, he was saying things like, Gary Shandling is not Tom Hanks. He is not, like, the nicest guy in Hollywood, right? I don't think he was a dick, but I do think that he was a nightmare to work for because this commitment to originality, which I think drove people crazy. I, th- I bet he could drive you up a fucking wall. Yeah. And so maybe the invitation was never extended. Who knows for The Simpsons? But for whatever reason, we have almost no mention of him. And then just to round out the category, he does have a Hollywood star, and he did appear on Arsenio Hall. So what to make of this, like, confusing accolades that he's so high on some of them. Yeah. He's reached them all yet, like, he kind of lacks the name recognition. I mean, I see some real similarities with John Prine. You know, if John Prine is a singer-songwriter, singer-songwriter, Gary Shandling is certainly a comedian's comedian. What to make of it, this looks somewhat deliberate to me. Whether or not he's in full control over just how famous he is, he had opportunities to be more famous and to hog the limelight, and I think he didn't. Because he is, at least for a time, in the center of the Hollywood machinery. And the fact that he has a contentious relationship with his manager who goes on to be the CEO of Paramount, Brad Gray, you can kind of see him being chewed up by the machine. Yeah. Category seven, over under. In this category, we look at the generalized life expectancy for the year they were born to see if they beat the house odds and as a measure of grace. Life expectancy for a man born in the U.S. in 1949 was 65.2. So pretty much right there. He was 66. 66 when he died. Okay, even money. Yeah. Yeah, but tragic. I mean, he basically just dropped dead. There was some knowledge that he had a health condition that could lead to, you know, real problems. And Correct. He had hyperthyroidism. Yeah. He eventually died of a heart attack. It's funny. It feels premature. It feels young. It was shocking. It remains shocking. So it's interesting that he's right at the middle of the distribution. But it was it's tragic. It seemed tragic and not just the age of 66 being too young, but you said this with Tom Petty that just you you wanted another chapter. You didn't see the closure of final chapters. I'm not sure I agree with that. You don't. Tom Petty I could have seen doing a kind of Johnny Cash like thing where he finds the right producer and totally reimagines what he's doing. I don't totally see that with Gary Shandling as a possibility. I don't see him getting paired up with the right director. Yeah, my imagined fourth chapter for him is something completely different off the grid. Interesting. Like Like a book or? No, no. Like outside of entertainment Hmm. is that he's teaching meditation to depressed college students. I don't know. To me, like the 21st century Gary Shandling is a little bit of a question mark. There's not too much out there. I do think that his commitment to Buddhism and meditation amplified as time went on. Would you call it spiritual? spiritual? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pronounced spiritual. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, you, know, I, you know, I've been meditating far too long to be uh, uh, happy about anything. The, um, I want to know if you've attained anything through your study of Buddhism. I, I don't know if attained is the right word. So uh, with the whole thing's a mess. I mean, uh, you get closer to just being. What exactly does that mean? All, all my journey is, is to be authentically who I am, not trying to be somebody else under all circumstances. Have you found confusion? And it takes a, sure, the whole world is confused 
because they're trying to be somebody else. To be your true self, it, it takes enormous work. Then we could start to look at the problems in the world. But instead, ego drives it. Ego drives the world. Ego drives the problems. This egolessness, which um, is the key to being authentic, is a, a battle. But I don't know, 16 years, 17 years between the end of Larry Sanders and his death is a long time. It's funny, when I look at clips of him in that period, I see, sometimes I see pain and trauma, and sometimes I see peace. I mean, that thing with Ram Dass, I see a real, like, presence and awareness, and, you know, and that was in the 20-teens. So we're a little bit divided on this. We agree we died young. I feel like there was more to be done. You feel like fairly sufficient. Fairly being the operative word, but yes. Let's pause for a break. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Michael, I want to talk to you about a void in my life. Uh, this is very famous in gravy. What's missing? It's in my liquor cabinet, Michael. I have lots of great whiskeys, things that I stand behind, very flavorful ones. Yeah. I don't have that in gin. Um, I have good gins. Yeah. I have nice labels, but they all sort of taste the same. There's not the oh my God gin. I have great news for you. You have great news for me. I have great news for you. Have you heard about Linden Leaf, Jen? Linden Leaf products? I have not, but I think I know how to spell it. I'm pretty certain it's L-I-N-D-E-N. Correct. Linden Leaf is the first spirits company to handcraft their ultra premium products at the molecular level. Let me say that again. At the molecular level. Fine-tuning flavors to create perfectly harmonious and exceptionally balanced spirits. So perhaps if I put this product in my liquor cabinet, I would have a flavorful aromatic gin that I can stand behind, earn credibility with all the guests and dignitaries that come to my apartment as I offer them a cocktail. You know who else you can serve? Famous and gravy listeners. You want to tell them about this? 
Everyone can find Linden Leaf products at shoplindenleaf.com, but only Famous and Gravy listeners can receive 20% off their first order using promo code FAMOUS20. That's FAMOUS20. Wow. Yeah, that is a hell of a deal for an ultra premium product. That's incredible. Famous and Gravy listeners, you've got to try this. Linden Leaf 88 Gin, a perfectly balanced flavor experience crafted and tuned at the molecular level. Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, Gorbachev is dead. Alive. Soccer great Pele. Uh, The rules are simple. Pele. (laughs) Dead or alive? I'll go dead. He's alive. Test your knowledge. Deadoralive.app.com Category 8, Man in the Mirror. What did this person think about their own reflection? Before you answer, I have a quote. And this is from a New Yorker article. Young Shandling was handsome, Odd, telegenic, intriguing, with a crown of fluffy hair, eyes that squinted in contemplation, and bemused and rather puffy lips. When he smiled, he revealed a surprisingly dazzling set of teeth. He looked as if his natural expression was thoughtfulness. The smile seemed to indicate the joy of finding the humor amid the introspection. I loved that description of the young Shandling. Yeah. So my answer for Man in the Mirror, I'm going to go to Uncharted Territory. I'm going to say he didn't know. He flip-flopped so much as to whether he was the best-looking person amongst all his contemporaries or whether he was an ugly duckling. God, I'm better looking in person. (laughs) I wasn't looking for a response. A self-help tape just says I should say it as often as I can. Don't we have to decide? Not if you're a neurotic. You can change. You can flip-flop every time you look, and you can never quite oh, God damn it. There's, no, there's so nobody we've done on this show who didn't flip-flop on their, their, you know, their own appearance. I'm saying he did it so frequently and so neurotically that he had to do all these self-deprecating jokes in order to, like, get an opposite response for validation. I just, I think this was a major neuroses of his. I agree with that, but I still think that we have to land somewhere on this man in the mirror question. It is framed in our show as a simple binary, and obviously it is not. Okay, so if it it has to be binary, then it's no. Did not like it, because didn't know what to make of it. I'm going yes. He dated Sharon Stone. I don't even think it's about his own attractiveness. There's an attention to body in his life, too. I mean, he boxed in later years, right? And he was doing yoga. He was playing basketball. I mean, he, you know, he's he's a fairly fit guy. So um, what, what do you make of my argument that all of his self-deprecating stand-up and of talking about all dating and all on stage is just seeking validation? I 100% agree with that. There's nothing you've said that I actually disagree with. All I'm saying is that we're supposed to make a decision in this category. I'm going to go yes. He liked the way he looked more than he didn't like the way he looked, even though I think it is pretty extreme in both directions for him. All right. Split ballot again. I like this. Yeah, no shit. There's a lot of conflict here. Category nine, outgoing message. Like man in the mirror, how did they feel about the sound of their own voice? Would they have left it on an answering machine themselves? I think he liked that it was obnoxious and nasally. Just by your Malkovich uh, 
the, the intro to your Malkovich story, I think he'd like that yeah. because it was uniquely original and that's what he was seeking. This is so great. I went no. Yeah. <laughs> I went, I'm a, I'm a lean no because I think it's one of, I actually wrote, I think it's one of the many things I think he was probably most neurotic about. There's a joke on Larry Sanders where he's, I think it's in the Dana Carvey episode where he's talking about like, he's imitating me. I don't sound that whiny and nasally and Rip Torn is, you know, producers like, yeah, not not like that. But like clearly, like sound whiny and nasally. Yeah, there is a whiny tone to it, and it could so easily tip over into annoying. One more dial, and it's Gilbert Gottfried, totally. right? Totally. But somehow it's not quite. But I do think that he felt insecure about it. That's my suspicion. Yeah, I I think he was insecure about it, but the originality of it triumphed. This is so funny that we're. I, wait, when was the last time you and I had this many disagreements? This is great. Well, well, okay. So the other half of outgoing message is the type of guy that would record. The message. And I think absolutely. I agree with that. And that goes back to originality. I think he would have some phenomenal ones. Yeah. I think you would call him up just to hear his voicemail. My, I bet he'd have great one-line jokes on it. Correct. But I don't even think it would be him. It would be, he'd be like describing the technology yeah. by which like a voicemail is recorded. Yeah, totally. All right. Category 10. Regrets, public or private. What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night. I'm going to hit just a few real quick. A lot of them we've already covered. We mentioned Brad Gray, his manager. And I mean, to recap, because I don't think we've done what actually happened, is that Brad became an agent, almost a super agent. But also an executive producer on Larry Sanders. Correct. And owned, I believe, 50% of the rights to the show, but basically was casting out all the writers and people in different gigs. Right. And thinning out what was the core of the Larry Sanders show for what Gary Shandling perceived was to better his own career. And so there was a lawsuit against Brad Gray and then a counter lawsuit against Gary Shandling. And then the crazy part of the story- wiretapping. Yeah. 10 years later, you find out that some lawyers hired this guy, what was his name? Anthony. It was like a real wiretapping name. Yeah. It was like Anthony Wiretapper or something. (laughs) (laughs) I think that might've been his name, Anthony Wiretapper. Anyway, trusting Brad Gray as a, as a public regret. I think that's probably... The trusting is the regret, not the going after him. Correct. He felt, at least as he said, like, I'm doing the right thing here by bringing this lawsuit against this guy. And then again, Brad Gray goes on to have this incredible career as a Hollywood executive becoming CEO of Paramount. Yes. And then died in 2017. But, I mean, you see pictures of those guys, like, young, horsing around in, like, motel rooms and stuff. Like, they were clearly close. Yes. Yeah. Um. I wrote marriage with a question mark. I don't think we need to revisit this. We I don't think we need to revisit it. it, but it's certainly a question specifically about Linda and the dissolution of their relationship. Yeah. The last regret I have, and I think this is more on the private side because I didn't hear him see him talk about this a lot. The movie he did with Mike Nichols after the Larry Sanders show called What Planet Are You From? Which was a flop and really looked like a misalignment in terms of expectations. And I think going into it, Gary... Chandling had high expectations because Mike Nichols is this renowned director, you know, the graduate and so on. So it looked like he sort of hopped on to the next thing after Larry Sanders a little fast. So I had that as a regret. Okay. Do you have anything else? I just wanted to note that I don't think it was a regret that he passed to be Letterman's successor. It would seem so obvious of yeah. a regret, but I really don't think it was. I agree. The private one I have, I hinted to in Over Under. But it's not taking a big risk and completely changing his life. Always hanging around L.A. and he may have been doing the private things, but I don't know. Maybe just toiling away in Indonesia for a few years could have been something for him. 
<sighs> Interesting. What you're pointing to here is perhaps he didn't go far enough. Yes. And I don't know. That seems like kind of a crazy, I don't know. I'm not saying he should have done three years of cave meditation. I'm just saying he should have maybe done some completely off-grid time to get the peace that I didn't see in him. I can't figure out if this guy had a largely great last 17 years or, or not. a miserable one. And Judd Apatow said that as much as that uh, he said either Gary Shandling's the happiest guy that he knows or he's somebody that's completely lost his mind. I mean, you and I are always guessing at these things. But what's so interesting is how hard this one is to guess. Yes. Gary Shandling, more so than anybody else, feels like it has a lot of, I'm not sure how much of the story is even out there. It's just amazing the people who talk about him and how they talk about him. I mean, Jim Carrey, Sasha Baron Cohen, Kevin Nealon, Saren Silverman, Chris Rock. I mean, you know, Jerry Seinfeld. He was so generous. Like, everything he learned the hard way, he gave to us on a silver platter. Yeah. And I remember at his memorial, a friend was like, who's going to be our Gary now? And I was like, we have to be the Garys now, you know? Oh, when they asked me, I said Steven Seagal. Oh, God. <laughs> I think your answer's better. Your answer is more zen. I specifically thought we need a new Gary and quickly said Steven Seagal. I, and I... Yeah, you can see that now in your comedy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next category. Good dreams or bad dreams? Fuck me, this is a hard one. This is not about personal perception, but rather... Does this person look haunted? Do they have something in the eye that suggests inner turmoil, inner demons, unresolved trauma? I'll just read what I wrote down. Very tough one. I had like at least nine E's in caps. I'll let Amit go first. <laughs> <laughs> because I lean towards haunted, but then I swing back. I win bad dreams. The shoulders are the tell to me. Wow. He's got these, the hunched up shoulders, which never, ever eased. In him, the original trauma of his um, brother's death, his brother's death, which was of cystic fibrosis, but he also wasn't informed at the time of death. There was a story there that he didn't find out for like days. Yeah, and you know he had this near death accident in the late seventies. Yeah, the which car he, accident. Yeah, yeah, which he claimed to have gotten so close to dying that he actually like heard a voice saying, "Do you want to return to life as Gary Shandling?" And he had to say yes in order for him to like wake up and be conscious again. I think this unrelenting quest for originality is something that keeps you up at night. It's torture. Poor sleep, bad dreams, torture. I want to not agree with you because I see it in the eye too. It, but then the next moment after a good joke, you know, I see brightness. I mean, it goes back and forth with him. I'm a late no too. I agree. Second to last category, cocktail, coffee, or cannabis. Which one would we most want to do with our dead guest? This may be a question of what kind of drug sounds like the most fun to partake with this person, or another point of view is that a particular kind of drug might allow access to part of them that you're most curious about. I went coffee. I often go coffee when I sense deep intellect and wisdom. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I'm not even sure how much more I need to say. I just want to have a cup of coffee with Gary Shandling, and I want to ask him what he's learned. I want to ask him for uh, life advice. Yeah. I'm going to need a full day on this because I want all three. And perhaps this is the parallels that we've pointed out between how much I see myself. So I, I don't know that I want to learn that much from him because I don't see great resolution. 
But I do want to have the coffee because he could, you know, just bestow life experience having lived longer than me and the things that he's seen. I want to bond with him over a cocktail because I think we have a similar rhythm. I think we have a similar style of humor. And then I want to do the cannabis to see if we can get somewhere together. Yeah. You know, to take just this weird combination of loving comedy and commitment to meditation and inner peace and see if we can just find a few answers together. I want to go back to something you said a second ago, because it surprised me to hear you say, I'm not sure he ever got to the resolution. I'm not sure he has much to teach me. Really? Uh, It's, I don't think I want to end up like him. And that's why I don't necessarily want all his advice. And so should we should we just take it? Are we going next category now? Yeah, I want to say something, though, before we go to the final category. The Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. I just want to remind myself and maybe the audience, while we make this show out to be all about the Vanderbeek, whatever answer you or I give next, I learned a lot here whether it's things he did that I want or things that he did that I don't want. I'm totally Mm 50-50 leading into this. I don't think you are. I can go because I think I already started. Okay. And where I started was I don't want too much advice from him because I don't want to end like him. In every phase of his life, I could just sense the suffering. I really could. And maybe this goes back to your number four and how you see our similarities is I just, I sensed the suffering and I've had a lot of suffering. I think I I suffer existentially in the same way that maybe Gary Shanling did. I jump around from careers and don't put enough things out there, but I I wanted to stop. You know, I really wanted to turn it around and, and find real peace where people look at me and it's like, that's not just an interesting guy or a funny guy or an original guy is that that's somebody that I, I really think is is happy. Hmm. And that's where I want it to turn. And I think all the Shandling ingredients are there. I mean, I think he's, he, he is a genius. Like the two shows that he put out there, and those being shows of the 80s and 90s, are just brilliant. There's there's no other way to put it. They're brilliant. His comic mind, his storytelling mind, his ability to be so far outside of the box I think he's a once-in-a-lifetime creator. Yeah. And I think that's admirable and that's desirable. But there's just this palpable sense of suffering that I think was what drew him to meditation. I think it's what led him to eventually be indecisive about the type of relationship that he wanted. It's him needing more from other people than they give because he gives so much and he don't think he receives as much in return. I mean, Sarah Silverman said that he was everything he needed, but was never given. And I don't want anyone to say that about me. So essentially, I love the guy. I really do, but I don't want his life. That makes sense. And bravo. I'm proud of you, man, for how much you took a look at this one and and how you're taking a look at it. I think this is maybe not an easy episode to do in a way. And uh, I know what you mean. Like, it's sort of easy and really possible here to look at all the tools he tried to assemble to solve the problem of Gary Shandling. And it's not conclusive. And it does feel like he threw the arsenal. And 
you know, at himself. <laughs> and, and there is a question of what's left, right? I think I'm a yes. And it really does boil down to one very simple thing here because my wife's going to fucking kill me for going yes on this. Maybe this is coming from a privileged place. I've got a soulmate. I've got a family. I've satisfied that criteria of expectation that society has thrust on all of us, right? And so it's easy for me to say yes, maybe. But what I see so thoroughly in him is the thing we pointed to earlier, the giving it away. A spiritual pursuit, as I understand it, is about ego deflation and acts of service and being there for God, if you want to use that term, and your fellow human beings. And when all other signs fail, with any other neuroses or inner pain or whatever, I do see him returning to that over and over again. And I just think that that is the ultimate life lesson. And I see it as not just a thing he did, but as the thing he did, as the accomplishment of his life. Whether or not that delivered him inner peace or not on his deathbed or anywhere else, it's just so unbelievably admirable to me that it's it's enough for me to go yes on the Vanderbeek. Because I know it's something I aspire to in myself, something I know I fall short of in myself. And I think when you've got the kind of power and talent he had, it's not even easy to know where to put that, you know? And I think he put it into art. I think he put it into people who were around him. And even if he never found the one individual, he didn't keep it all up inside. Really tough one. <sighs> Across all categories, I, not just in the culmination. Dude, I feel like I could do this whole episode again and have a whole different conversation. Yeah. Wow. I think you should do this. Amit. Mm-hmm. You are Gary Shandling. You've died. You've gone to the Pearly Gates with St. Peter. You have an opportunity for redemption into the afterlife. You have a chance to make a pitch. The floor is yours. Okay, St. Peter. So everybody back down there on Earth has some interpretation of how he passed through. And most of it has to do with selflessness. Just be selfless. Don't be selfish. If we're all getting the wrong message, you've played the greatest prank. <laughs> of all time, because that's what I think my ticket in is, the selflessness and how much I gave and gave and gave and gave. I was an artist's artist. I created shows that were beloved, not by tens of millions, but by hundreds of thousands. But I mentored and I taught and I took in and I played ball with the young ones who ended up being the masters of the populace, who made them laugh in the mainstream, on the edge, who reached literally every corner of the globe, every corner of the heart with the comedy and the entertainment they produced. And I helped them do it. I gave. Let me in. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying our show, 
please tell your friends about us. Help spread the word. Also, if you're interested in participating in the opening segment where we quiz people about who today's dead celebrity is, feel free to submit your name. You can reach us at hello at famousandgravy.com. That's hello at famousandgravy.com. Find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at famousandgravy. And we also have a newsletter, which you can sign up for on our website, famousandgravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. And thanks so much to this week's sponsor, Linden Leaf Organic Molecular Spirits. Again, you can get a 20% discount on our website if you use our promo code FAMOUS20. That's two zero. Thanks for listening. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.